This is a podcast with a lady named Jumar Johnson. And Jumar is, she is the chief of staff at the Open University. And she's all about kindness. She's all about lifelong learning. And she believes in people. She believes in environment. She believes in how you show up is so, so crucial in forging your career forward. And that's what this session's all about. I enjoyed this interview so, so much. And so will you. Let's do this. Juma Johnson, let's talk about kindness. Okay. What is kindness? What is kindness? Um, I think it's where you think of other people, your environment, um, and how you show up, really. Um, so I lead with kindness. I teach my son kindness. Everything can be looked at with the lens of kindness. So, for example, at work, if I have to give somebody feedback, um, I'll think carefully about what I need to say, why I need to say it, is now the right time to say it? What is the message I want to give? How will the other person feel when they hear it? And therefore, how do I position the message in the kindest way possible so that it's productive, positive, and yet constructive? What a beautiful outlook on leadership in the modern world. We, we had a conference a few months back and a lady spoke called Mary Portis. She talks about kindness. And she said, you better be a good person first. Because if you're not, that's where you start. Because the world will not the world will not be patient with you. There's no space. And in what you just said, you said people, environment, and how you show up. So for the listeners reading, you're the chief of staff at the Open University. Yes. Chief of people. What have you learned about people since you were through that role? Um, so... A chief of staff at the university is chief of staff to the vice chancellor. Um, we have a chief people officer, mm-hmm. chief of all things people yep. at the university. So in a sense, I don't hold that portfolio, thankfully, in some ways. Um, but the chief of staff is responsible for um, being a sort of aide and advisor to the vice chancellor. I guess in some ways, his safe space. Yep. I'm not his boss. I'm not the board. Um, I'm not the management board. I'm his, in a sense. Um, I'm also responsible for our fundraising efforts, so all our alumni across 177 countries, all our philanthropic fundraising. And then there is something called special projects in my job description. So special projects is pretty much anything. Um, all things... Give us an example. Um, all things random, all things important, all things that require you to join the dots, really. I think that's like my day job, joining the dots. Um, I feel a bit like Connect Four most of the time. Well, people, um, connecting people. Can always trying to find a solution to things by putting the right people together. Um, 20 years uh, as a fundraiser, that's really all you do. You do matchmaking between people and causes. Uh, and you were saying fundraising for philanthropy? Yes. Um, there used to be a fundraiser in the charity sector. Right. Um, and then now in the higher education sector. So it's about sort of bringing people together. And that's really the sort of day job of a chief of staff. So a good example is uh, the Ukraine crisis. So when that hit, of course, our university wanted to be able to help, just like all the others in the sector did. In fact, everybody did. Um, and it was obviously going to be some sort of a university-wide uh, response. So our staff wanted to do things. Undoubtedly, we have students who are Ukrainian and Russian 
Um, and there was also a whole sector-wide response, so who we are as an educator, as an online yep. distance learning provider. And But there is no natural home for something like that. You know, you can't place it in a marketing or a communications function. Um, so chiefs of staff become those hands that get given these sorts of special yep. projects. Um, and this is one that I haven't given up. Um, so very often I'll go in, help pull the right people together, set up a team, and then they do their thing and I leave. Um, but this one has sort of stayed with me um, through the entire duration. I quite like that. There's a three-step process that you just said, shared. One, bring people together. Number two, set up a team. Number three, leave them to it. Absolutely. I mean, there are people in the university who are far cleverer um, than I am. They know their subject matter really well, and they know how to get things done. My job is to just find the right people, bring them into a room together. There's an art there, though, because a lot of people hold on, and they want to be the superhero. And the, some some people call it superhero syndrome or superheroitis, and <laughs> you know. But yeah, that let's go through them in in turn. Then may I so, say something there? Yeah, go. Becoming a chief of staff is a bit more like a degree in being invisible, um, because if things are working and you're invisible, you've done your job. So I used to be very visible in the organisation. Um, before I took on this sort of experiment, which is now four years old. And I've learned now over a four-year period that actually this is really not about credit. It's about getting the job done. Um, I don't need to be in the front of anything. I don't need to get credit for what I'm doing. But did you, things are happening. Did you ever want to get credit for what you were doing? Um, I think in your 20s and your 30s, you spend a lot of time needing to build credit to be seen to be getting the recognition so that you rise through the ranks, for example. Um, I mean, it's what you're kind of wired to do. You know, How are you going to get promoted? How are you going to rise through the ranks? Well, you need to get noticed. Then you get a bit older. Um, maybe you get a bit more successful or wiser or whatever. And you realize, actually, that it's much more about, for me, certainly, about going to bed with a clear conscience, about being satisfied with my own performance in a day and about actually having done a kindness in the day, having kept my conscience clean during the day, having kept my integrity intact during the day. And as a result, actually, it becomes far less about credit um, and much more about doing the right thing. Can I mention ego here then? It was one thing that I was thinking of when you were saying that. And I was thinking of that you're one of those people that's, it's not about me and you're happy with that. So it's almost like you've lost the ego. Did you ever have the ego? Because you said 20s and 30s, you're <laughs> rising through the ranks to quote you. Mm. Did you ever have the ego? I think everybody has an ego. And I think it's what you do with it and whether the ego becomes you or whether you find a way to harness your ego. And um, so, yes, of course I have an ego. And of course I like praise. And of course I like being recognized. Because you're a human do. being. But it's not the driver. I don't do what I do. What's your drive? To be. I think doing the right thing um, and having my own sense of purpose, though I'm not quite sure I have a definition to what that purpose is, but I remember many, many, many years ago reading um, Franklin Covey's book. Seven Habits. About your seven habits about your A lot purpose. of universities have put that kind of education into theirs. Absolutely. Um, and it's just as relevant today. In which, fact, which, so which is much your favourite habit? Um I never really got the uh, the bit that I was just talking about, but I think there are two. I particularly like be proactive. Yeah. That is 
it just defines me in a way that I don't think I've ever found a definition. That's habit number one. Uh, number one. And um, I think there is an element in what he says about seek to be understood. Yeah, yeah. Or, um, I think that's number four. Seek to understand before you uh, are understood. Those are the two I've carried with me all my life. Um, and I think in many ways, as a result, it really doesn't become about ego. It just becomes about doing the right thing in the right way and always trying to carry your relationships through Let's go on that second one first. Mm. Seek first to understand. Is the key to seeking first to understand listening? 100%, 200%. Yes. Um, As a fundraiser, it's the first thing that I used to teach. It's the first thing you get taught. You cannot put a person and a cause together. You can't do matchmaking if you don't listen to what your organization requires, but what that individual was going to give you money is driven by, you know, what are their interests? What are what is I the change? Suppose even from a make? business perspective, people listening and to this implies... from someone else that's going to give you money, you better listen to what they want to name. Everything. It. Yeah, I mean, fundraising is fundraising. You, whether it's philanthropic fundraising yeah. or fundraising for a startup, it's fundraising. You're going to sit in front of people who have money, and you have something you're pitching for. You have to find the middle ground, that happy place where um, what they want to invest in and who they want to invest in is the person that's showing up there and how do you create that match between the two? Um, so you have to learn, you have to listen. And of course, I have an innate curiosity for people. I love people. Um, and they have stories. And in those stories are those nuggets that help build relationships and give you that information that is really important to sort of say, I can see how this cause and your interests are going to align. Um, and for all of that, you have to listen. Um, and when you do 100% listening, there is no room for ego. There is just room for who you are and who I am. You know when someone's really listening? Uh, I hope so. I mean, I also went on to do an executive coaching qualification, which really teaches you then how to listen. Through the Open University? Uh, no, we do. It's through the Academy of Executive Coaching. All right. Um, the OU doesn't really do anything in coaching particularly. What's the green eye here that I've... It's been drawing my attention a few times. What is that? So... If you're Indian, this is evil eye, so it's warding off the evil eye. If you're Greek or Turkish, for example, it's much more about positive vibes. Both of them kind of same side of the coin. Um, so it's warning off the eagle eye, evil eye, and it's giving you positive vibes. I, 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 I don't really do the evil eye thing. It's not particularly superstitious in that way, but I like the positive vibes. But, but it, it, irrespective, it goes fantastic with the outfit. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, so... Um, let's go back to the other the other one then. Be proactive. What's the key to being proactive? Developing that as a as a mindset or in your how you conduct yourself. What's the key there? So I've always been very curious about the sort of nature nurture debate, you know. And I think proactive people, reactive people. There's maybe a good thesis in there for somebody to do a bit of research. What is what is nature? What is nurture? There are we born as reactive people? Are you recruiting for any um, of that? <laughs> Yes, that would be great. Thank you. If you'd like to do a PhD in it, I'll try to find some funding. Um, there you go. For it. There you go. You heard it here today. So is it nature? Is it nurture? Was I born as a proactive person or have I been shaped um, to be a proactive person? But for me, proactive means you're generally willing to do, no matter what's thrown at you. My general outlook is what can I do to fix this? Well, definitely a fixer. What can I do to fix this? How do we problem solve out of it? How do we get from A to B? reactive people generally will kind of think about you know what I could have done it's the coulda woulda shoulda kind of people 
Uh, and it's always something, me. yes, it's always some something is to blame. Yeah. Um, in my mind, blame doesn't even appear. I just think of problem solving. And I think, I don't know whether that is genuine personality or whether that is your upbringing that does it. I'm trying to encourage my son to be in that space. Um, so we'll see if that science experiment works out. Um, he's he's 10, so it's hard to tell which way he's going to go. <laughs> Um, but I do. How do you how do you influence a child at ten year old? I think um, I fortunately met somebody that um, you were interviewing, and they said something that was very correct. Just show them how it's done. All I can do is be the best example in front of him. And children are such sponges; they learn constantly, and they learn from everything in their environment. Um, and he honestly is like a science experiment because I don't remember being a baby. I don't remember how I learned things. Um, I can't imagine a life without knowing how to move my arms and legs. I can't imagine a life without language and speech. But when we were born, we had none of it. And I don't remember any of that uh, and how I learned it. But I watch him, like a science experiment, going, oh, this is how you learn. And actually what you learn with babies is that they learn by watching, doing, you know. And Social parents are the, the, the sort of North Star for most of it until they then start socializing. And so... And that North Star, I think, stays until there might be a reason for, you know, a disconnect, but it stays. So the best thing I can do is set a good example. My son sees how certain things are important to me. We talk about them. We talk a lot. Uh, I'm a communicator, hardly a surprise. He comes home. I ask him how your day was. I ask him five questions and he goes, why do you ask so many questions? I just need some me time, some downtime. Um, but we talk. We talk about everything. I hope that, you know, as we, as he grows up, he feels that he has parents he can talk to about anything. Yeah, look, you're talking about setting the example there, and there was a psychologist called Bandora. You might be aware of it. He talked about social learning theory, observation, imitation, learning. So you learn through observing and imitating and then correcting and trial and error, etc. Who have and you learned throughout your life? Yeah, I think throughout. that's the thing. You're constantly learning. There's a book called Being the Best. And it's an A to Z on performance. And it's got chapter A is A for attention, B is for belief. And it keeps going, L is for lifelong learning. Certainly. And I know you're into that, aren't you? Absolutely. I mean, the Open University stands for lifelong learning. But I fundamentally believe that if you're not learning, you're dead. How has that mindset or belief helped you get to where you're at? Because I think if you're willing to accept that life is about learning you also are willing to accept that you don't know everything. So every conversation, every person, whether it's my taxi driver, whether it's whether it's the donor, whether it's my boss, every day is a school day. Whether it's my son who comes home with something. The conversations with, a, let's call it a know-it-all, no, they never make you feel good, do they? And you also learn surprisingly very little from people who think they know everything. Right. Um, other than the fact that they don't know everything. You walk away at least knowing that much. Yeah, you, you get that belief, don't you? It's like... But it's not possible to know everything. It just isn't possible. I mean, there's nearly 8 billion of us. How can you possibly know everything? I ask a lot of people this question because I just don't think there's a unique way and I'm learning this myself. How do you make people feel special? You listen. Um, you care. Um, and if you're listening well and you care you'll pick up what is important to them. And if it's important to them, you'll do something about it. 
Yeah, there's, uh, there's a book by uh, Martin Newman called Emotional Capitalists. It's around emotional intelligence, development, and leadership. And I learned from Martin, and he said this. He said, listening is the biggest skill in the world at reducing resistance in any area of life. Listening. Just reduces resistance. What's your opinion on that? It's very true, but it's much harder to do. Um, Why? Because I think this is the sort of old adage, really, to apply, not to understand. We are so wired to kind of be two steps ahead of Mm -hmm. what you're going to be getting to. Then we make assumptions. And I think that's the downfall, really. Um, And of course, once you come out of listening mode in a leadership space, for example, in running companies, organizations, you start to make assumptions that you know what is best for the business, what is best for its people. And you forget sometimes that it's really important to make time for people to be able to say what they need to say, for people to be heard. It may not change your business decisions, but it does mean that you'll carry your people with you most of the time. Um, and it's a really, really tough job to do, to make time. If time is money, to make time to listen doesn't always cleanly equate to money. Whereas for me, actually, the investment in your people is basically where your gold is. So if you listen, you understand what they're interested in, you understand what makes them tick, why they come to work, why they believe in your organization. The Open University is hugely mission-driven. And actually, what's gold dust for this organization, and I mean, I've been there nearly 10 years, I was meant to be there for three months on a contract, is that wherever you go, no matter who you talk to, no matter how long they've been in the organization, they can tell you word for word what the mission of the organization is. It's nice. They know. And it's the mission that drives them. What's the mission? Um, to be open to people, places, methods, and ideas. So basically to make education open. Whoever you are, wherever you come from, no matter where you started, education can change your life. And people, places, education, uh, and ideas. People, places, methods, and ideas. Metrics. <laughs> methods and ideas. Well, you've got to have a method, haven't you? That, that, the word idea is such a positive word. I love it. You know, when when you say ideal, there's, um, if I'm going back in time now, I'm going back to 1937, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill. You know, chapter one, desire. Everything is created twice, and everything that you can see, hear, feel, and touch has been created twice in this universe. First in someone's imagination as an idea, and then, the you know, this cup. Someone had an idea, I'll, Ikea. Had an idea. Ikea, there you go. Had an idea. And uh, all other providers of glass. Yes. It's just an Ikea glass. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not being prejudiced or anything like that to anyone else that's a glass maker. If you've got good glass, come and sell us it. Pitch it. We need to talk about pitching in a second. Um, but it's been created twice. And what he says in that chapter is, when you're think, thinking of ideas, you got to think of ideals. No unrestricted time, unrestricted. What is the ideal? You know, what what ideally do you want in your life? Does the does the Open University do that? We're not perfect. Uh, we're mission driven. Sometimes we're purpose driven. Sometimes we could do better. Um, but I think the mission most certainly always brings us back to the center, even if we deviate. Sometimes 
I think like all human beings, and organizations are run by human beings at the end of the day. So let's say they are human. Um, all human beings, no matter how committed to your purpose, if you've defined your purpose, can meander. Sometimes things happen in life and, and organizations are the same. But I think if you have a central purpose or a mission, you will always come back to it. And that's what I was saying about your North Star. You'll always come back to it. And hopefully it will then help you understand what did you learn on that meandering and why is it important to stay on the path. So we do. Our students are our North Star, you know, making sure that we can give them the opportunity to succeed in whatever it is that they want to do in life is what guides us. Sometimes we go off a little bit on tangents and side roads, but we always focus back in on that. You see, I think that's a big point, Gaynor. When someone can credibly in front of you say, this is what my North Star is. This is where I'm going. This is why I'm so passionate about it. It's really inspirational to those around you. And you're, you know, if it, the Open University can be really proud of you being sat here right now and speaking as you're speaking because you're, you're a great representation for them. So you're clear on your North Star. Do you do that with your students? Are they clear on their North Star? Because that comes up in our coaching all of the time with business. What is the North Star? I mean, I like that analogy. I'm not even sure I have one as clearly articulated. You did say that. You You did say that 10 minutes ago. But sometimes, you know, the North Star can also be short term. Um, You know, sometimes, you know, in the next five years, this is what I want to achieve. That's fine. There are some people like elite athletes, for example, you know, very young age, they know exactly what they're going to excel at. And then their whole life is dedicated to that. And I really admire that. I don't think I have that discipline. I don't think I found that one true love in life that I'm going to follow. But I think for me, my one true love is people. And that for me becomes my North North Star. Somewhere between people and kindness is, is my happy place. Um, I mean, for example, just now I was kind of distracted because you were quoting books and I was thinking in my head, I really admire how you remember the books that you've read and the chapter that you've read. I've got useless recall for things like that. I remember numbers and spreadsheets, but things I might have read, songs I might have heard, don't have any recall for things like that. But then I immediately thought to myself, you're distracted. You're thinking about yourself and not what he's saying, actually. So I think sometimes it's very difficult to stay track life happens things happen and it's always useful therefore for that north star it's like a magnetic pull once you've got it it will always keep pulling you back to it right now my north star is what you're saying to me and the conversation that we're going to have so even if i'm distracted and there's a tiny little spider having a little uh look around our conversation little visitor um that's what's pulling me back you know just needing to listen to what you're saying. And that's all right, that little bit, of, that's self-awareness though, what you've just said, isn't it? I mean, uh, there you go. I mean, Stephen Corby did say, I mean, you, you, you mentioned his seven habits. He didn't say this in the seven habits, but he was he was a great mover and shaker, really, <laughs> in, in, that, in that time. Massive inspiration to the world. He, he did say with your purpose, allow that to evolve. You know, it does require reflection. It does require critical thinking, but Go with something like what you said about kindness and people and, and just allow it to evolve. And it, it might take up to two years for you to get really, really clear. That's what he said. Yeah. But I, what I took from that at the time was reassurance and confidence and let myself, all right, I'll, I'll let this. Otherwise, you, 
you were thinking, well, what is my purpose? Where am I going? And almost forcing yourself down a rope. So he just said, let it evolve. And I just thought that was such a nice way. Um, and I encourage all people to do exactly that. And I think you were asking about our students, really. And our students are often like the rest of us. You know, There is no real sort of age for an open university student. Our youngest graduate is 13. Our oldest graduate is 93. You know, there is no type there, really. And some of them really know what they want out of life. Some of them have had experiences that have told them they'll never be good at anything. They'll never amount to anything. And as a result, sometimes they're lost. And our job, really, as educators, is to help them find hope and find themselves just by making an opportunity available. And then, you know, they go on to do the most amazing thing. Some of the stories that you hear, you know, if you can qualify... Uh, if you can graduate being fully paralyzed and not being able to do anything other than blink your eyes and what would take you and me an hour to do takes them five hours to do as an exam but you will do it because your north star is your son and the example that you wanted to set for your son that anything is possible you sort of think well really anything is possible if you put your mind to it you, you're making me think of other authors now i don't know why i'm thinking of all <laughs> these but as if, put that in your head now yeah you, you have because I think this originated with Victor Frankl. I'm almost certain it did. A lot of people have quoted it since, but Victor Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, he survived four concentration camps, tortures, conditions. And he basically, he, proved, he, he did a research experiment in Auschwitz and he proved this. If there's a big enough reason to do anything, you'll do it. And as soon as you said that, para being paralyzed, I was thinking, what's the reason? You know, I'll go through these five hours for my family, for kindness, for people, to bring people together. Um, I think you could, you could probably bring it down to the daily life. You know, most of us are just regular people doing regular things, doing a nine-to-five job. I mean, who does a nine-to-five job anymore? But just turning up every day. And I just think even that, the fact that you turn up every day and you do what you do and you do it to the best of your ability... Even that is driven by the same thing. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do extreme challenge events. It's just the daily, you know, if you can wake up and think, I've got purpose, I've got meaning, I'm going to have fun, I get joy out of what I'm doing, you're on the same path as somebody who's thinking, I'm going to climb Kilimanjaro for all of these reasons. Yeah, and, and that, that can give you confidence, yeah? I wonder what percentage of students then, you know, some people you said come in and they know exactly what they're going to do and a lot of people don't know what they're going to do. You didn't say a lot. I just threw that in, by the way. You didn't definitely didn't say that. So what were the split is? What do you reckon? I mean, 208,000 students. The chances are a lot like you and me are finding their way through life and their purpose is evolving. But what they often know, that first step, is that they want to do something with their lives. And that the open university will give them the opportunity that they might not have had before. Why does education increase your opportunities? So I grew up in India. Yep. And one point five, six, seven billion and counting people. Education is one of the only ways really out of growing up in such a populous environment, growing up um 
I didn't grow up in poverty, but growing up in poverty, grew up in a lower middle class family. Father uh, was an Indian naval officer. Um, you you understand very early on that education is the door to opportunity. Um, you know, you educate did, did, did they use that phrase or did you come up with that phrase? No, it just came up in my head right now. I'm sure I read it Education is the door to opportunity. I'm sure I read it somewhere. Let's there are others much more clever than me who say things like that. Um, but to me, that's that's always what it's been. Even though, of course, growing up, that's not what you think. You know, you're being asked to do homework, and there's rigidity. And of course, which kid wants to be doing homework and exams? And my my parents had always sort of said, and in educate uh, in India, education is pretty non-negotiable. You, know, you have to do it till 21. So my father, since I've lived here for 22 plus years, has never understood this concept of 15, 16 year olds having agency in this country to say, I'm going to stop going to school. And someone in our family, in the extended family, decided to do that. And my father was extremely upset. How can a 15-year-old be told, be allowed to have that level of agency? They don't know the consequence of the decision that they're making today to give up education. Of course, we've subsequently had many chats about why people make those decisions and why you can go back to education. But in, in India, it's a very linear path. You're going to do your schooling, your, mm-hmm. you know, your undergraduate, your postgraduate. And my father always used to say, you know, you've got the rest of your life for makeup and boys. First comes education. You make your life and then you decide who to invite into it. Um, so education was always going to be the way. But for me, I mean, looking back, it's opened every door, everything I am today, who I am, how I show up, what I stand for. is because of the education that I went through, for sure. And continue to, actually, every day you learn something doing courses, keeping yourself up to date, all of that kind of teaches you. In fact, as you grow older, going back into learning reintroduces yourself to you. You learn to look at yourself in a different way. You inflect, you reflect, and you kind of think, oh, this is who I've become. Because it gives you the luxury to stop. And every time you read something, every time you learn something, you kind of go, oh, I see. This is how it applies to me. This is how it applies to the world around me. And how does this translate to the mark that I want to leave, what I want to achieve? So I think it's really, really important education. It's why I want my son to love learning. It's not about exams. It's not about grades. I am most certainly not the stereotypical Indian parent. Um, And apologies to anybody who gets offended by the stereotypical Indian parent, but most Indian parents will recognize the stereotype. You know, we're very pushy when it comes to education, being that door to opportunity and to aspiration. Um, I'm not that person at all. I just want him to learn. I want him to have fun while he's learning. Because he'll carry that with him. Good grades, academic achievement, that will happen. I'm sure we're going to get some comments on that. Have you heard of the phrase, and maybe this, this is a generalised accepted principle of success in business anyway, um, you learn before you earn. Have you heard that phrase? I don't know who, was it Jim Rohn, was it? I've been Brad Sugars or Jim. We're Jim going Ryan. with your memory on, on things like this, okay. right? So we'll go with yours. You le- um, do you believe that? So open university students would prove that wrong to some extent because they learn and earn. Um, so three quarters of our students study and work. I see what you're doing here. You're doing a really good sales pitch. <laughs> Kidding. I'm a fundraiser for my university. It's the job. But I wouldn't work for any other higher education establishment but the open university. I believe in its mission and I believe in what it's trying to do and I believe it makes a difference. So so what the, what you're saying is that they learn and earn. Yes. What came first, the chicken or the egg? 
the eternal mystery, isn't it? Yeah, but uh, <laughs> depends. But on the more they learn, with. the more they learn, and then apply it. Do they earn more? Um, yes, of course, because your learning helps you. I mean, a lot of our students would be testament to that. You know how education has helped them. Yeah. Um, go on to whatever you may class as better. Sometimes it could be different. It's better. Sometimes it is those fairly straightforward promotions, salary increases. Um, I don't think one is the only path to gauge success. But, you know, we have students, for example, who went down the conventional yeah. uh, a degree pathway, i.e. campus-based university, realized it's not right for them for whatever reasons, came to the university, may have for the first time been told that they have some sort of a learning disability, for example, um, and then found their home in a space that says, you do learning the way you want to do it, the way it suits you, at the pace it suits you. And they've gone on to become entrepreneurs, set up several businesses, and you sort of think, well, you know, who's to say really that there is only one way of doing things? There are so many different ways of doing things. There's so many of us with lots of abilities and lots of circumstances and things that shape us. If education can be flexible and it can allow you to become who you are. I mean, how important is flexibility in in finding your way forward? You know, the the alternative the opposite of flexibility is rigid rigidity, yeah. And life is anything but rigid. Um, you know, curveballs get thrown at you for all sorts of mm. And what you were taught really in many ways by life is adapting. You know, um, my father, I mentioned, was in the Navy. You know, we moved all the time. You'd pack up on Friday. He wouldn't even be there half the time. My mum and I would pack up things on Friday, start a whole new school and life on Monday. And I think they don't even know that that's the gift they've given me. The best gift they could have given me is that comfort with change. I have no issues with change whatsoever. I'm not one of those people in the other extreme who seek change because they get bored easily. Yeah. But I love change. And actually, it brings out the best in me. Suddenly, when things change and you have to think on your feet and you think, you know, hey, how are we going to do this? What do we need to fix? Now, whether that is a challenge in life or whether that is something at work that need, that's changing, it doesn't matter. The best outlook has been comfort with change. We'll find our way through it. Do you think that's really important then, being open to change and success? But I mean, when does anything stand still around you? Nothing stands still around you. The world changes. Life happens. So if you can't find some degree of comfort with change and some acceptance of change, you're always going to be going uphill. Let's go acceptance. So you're into kindness. So Mother Teresa, yeah? So say that again? Mother Teresa. Yeah, okay. Um, think somebody quoted her on this or learned this from her. The only pain in life is resisting what is. And that's acceptance, yeah? Yes. Does that mean, does that allow you to change? Yes, I think so. When you don't resist the obstacles that are in front of you, you're not, you don't feel pain from it. But resistance also, in many ways, means that you're not accepting. So, you know, at the end of the day, if I want to be an astronaut, there are lots of things that will cause that resistance, yeah, yeah. right? I can't just wake up one morning and go, I want to be an astronaut. Yeah. But I could accept either... What does it take to become an astronaut? And therefore, what oh, life path I'm going to be on? This. Or I could choose to say, well, I can't really be an astronaut, but what is it about being an astronaut that I really love? Could I do it in my own little life in Milton Keynes? 
Or, okay, let's just accept I can't be an astronaut. But what else can I be? Have you heard, have you heard of Carol Dweck? Oh, yes. She said that beautiful thing for kids that I really resonates How with. do you remember all these things? Yeah, because, because I share it. The more I share it, the, yeah, you get to learn it. But again, that's, I learned that from Stephen Covey. Um, so again, it's just a value, just pass it, pay it forward kind of value. Yeah, so just the, the more that you share it, the more it becomes you, doesn't it? It's, it's internalized. You've developed the more program for it, and then you, you don't even need to think about it. That's how you remember. Um, where were we before that bit? You were talking about Carol Dweck. Oh, Carol Dweck, yeah. Um, you said, I can't be an, an astronaut. And she says, yet. You must say yet just at the end because automatically your mindset changes. And the younger you you can instill that into people, the better. You know, I've got young kids, same as you. You know, and I just love getting them to say, just say that again, just say this at the end. And you, you can just see the shift. Or that question, why? why I can't do this. Why? Get them to think about what is it that they are. Um, and or as, as you say, why not? There are some really interesting questions, simple questions that even a five-year-old could ask. Um, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't need to tell my son what to do, even though, don't get me wrong, I'm not a saint and I do use no and hard lines and all of those sorts of things. But a lot of the time, actually, if you're present in your parenting, just as you're present in your leadership or you're present in your coaching, you recognize that questions have power. Simple little things that make people go, oh, I've got to answer this now. And in order to be able to answer this, I've got to think about what's going on. Why can't I do that? Why not? There's a couple of things that you, you're alluding to another point there. You've not said it, but you've said it two or three times before this. You, I think you started with, I'm a communicator at some point, you said. And then you said, I talk. Yes. <laughs> I, and I make time to talk. But you use the word make time and there's a great a great coach not famous coach but a great coach who once said to me your children spell time like this l-o-e-e doesn't everyone spell time like that um very profound very difficult i think but making time requires effort and commitment and patience Oh, yes. Yes. I think all good things in life need one of those things. All good things in life need us to make time. But life is tough. Life happens. And it's very diff very easy, I think, to fall into the trap, for example, of telling. It's faster to tell a kid what to do than to say, how would you do it? That takes time. Then you have to let them find their way. Then you have to help them. Go from here to there. Yeah, I, it I, takes a lot longer. I think it takes awareness, it takes calculation, it takes having a methodology, being aware, asking the question in the first place, kindness, patience. You said, you know, <laughs> patience there's there's a lot of ingredients that's going in there, isn't there? Um, which comes back to the only pain in life is resisting what is. You know, I can just tell them what it is. I just accept it. Ask a question and. See where they go with it. Um, where should we go next? Let's have a look. 
yeah, you, you did mention the word me time. <laughs> what what is me time? Um, badly made, never found. <laughs> uh, me time. Um, I think you were talking about other people's me time rather than yours at the time. You know, taking time to talk to people. Then you mentioned me time afterwards. Oh, um, Wait, but just carry on with what you're on. Uh, well, I mean, I, I think it's really important actually to talk about this because one of the blessings, I hope, of the pandemic um, will be that we now talk about mental health and well-being so much more than we did three years ago. Um, and... One, it's become acceptable to talk about it. Two, it's become much more mainstream in organizations to put interventions in place and opportunities in place for people um, so that they can think about their mental health and welfare. And then as a result, it also makes it legitimate in some cases to sort of go, hey, what about me in all of this? You know, When you love people, it's very easy to lose sight of yourself sometimes. You're so busy doing, you're so busy rising, you're so busy achieving, you're so busy filling your hours with all the things that you need to do. You then lose track sometimes of where you are in all of that. And I think everything becomes difficult and harder if your cup isn't full. So I'm not at my best if my cup isn't full and I'm busy doling it out to everybody else. And I don't think I've cracked this one. I'm often my own last priority. What do you mean, my first. What do you mean if my cup's not full? Um, so let's say um, you're not making time for yourself to stop, to think, to do whatever it is that gives you energy. Then every time, every day you show up, your energy cup is a little bit emptier because you're busy giving it away to others. You're solving others' problems and teaching them how to do things or getting them to talk about what's going on in their lives. And fixers, and I'm definitely one of those people, expend a lot of energy doing that, yes. just giving, giving, giving. And of course... It's, it's a great space to be in, but you can only give to a point. If your cup is empty, there's nothing to give. How do you so keep, how you do you keep find... it full then? Um, me, are you saying me time? Yes, me time. <laughs> and sometimes me time is spending time with my son. Sometimes me time is trashy TV or whatever channel. You What's trashy TV? Sometimes it can be a documentary. Sometimes it's... Doesn't sound Indian. trashy. That's... Sometimes it's Indian matchmaking. Oh, right. uh, stuff. Maybe, maybe trashy, borderline. It's how you define trashy, yeah, right? I'm, I'm trying to be careful. One yeah. person's trashy is another person's education. Um, there's a lot to learn in Indian matchmaking about Indian culture, for example. Um, so it depends really what I'm in the mood for. Sometimes I have three books on the go. Something might be sort of work-related on coaching or influence. Sometimes it might be a trashy, you know, historical novel, Um it's just wherever you find that time and space. Some people find it in gardening. Some people find it in running. I, I've only just learned in the pandemic how to keep things alive. Um, and running is really not my thing. It's pretty... Other keep things alive? And get plants alive. Okay. I used to kill everything. Nothing was ever left in my office unless it needed to die. Um, but the pandemic taught me that actually I can nurture plants. And there are several in my house now and flourishing. So I learned something new. I didn't quite learn baking and things like that. We were never going to get there or the running or any of those things. But, you know, I learned to keep plants alive. So I think wherever you find it, but it's the key is making that time for yourself. Actually, I learned from my boss. And so we've only known each other for four years. And he is the most disciplined man I have met when it comes to thinking time. And 
I think the more uh, senior how, you become. How, how much thinking time? So we actually have sort of agreed um, parameters for how much time in his week is thinking time. It can move, it can flex, all of those sorts of things. But, you know, 20% of his diary time, for example, is thinking time. Yeah, a day a week. A week. Um, if more, depending on what's going on in the week, then we do that. And that thinking time can also be prep time. Yep. You know, he doesn't go, I'm more of a winging it kind of person and he's the prep kind of person, which is why we're a good match. Um, but he doesn't go anywhere unless he's prepped. It means knowing who's going to be in the room. It means knowing the agenda. It means knowing his objectives. What does he want to get out of it? He's rehearsed his speech. It, he's never off time. But it shows you the care he puts into everything. And that comes from having really made time to think about things. And I think the more senior you become in leadership, not that this isn't a good habit to start at any point in your career, but the more senior you become in re- leadership, the more you have a duty to make time to yeah. think. Well, would you class as that as working on yourself? Um, it can be whatever you need it to be. Sometimes it really is actually taking some feedback from something that might not have gone well thinking about the next opportunity you've got and thinking, hey, how can I show up better? What about... What did I learn? Sometimes it may be, I've got a meeting with James coming up. You know, I need to prep for what is he going to throw at You're me. not a preparer. I'm a winger. You're, you're a winger. Did you, sure. are, you, are you winging this? Um, this one, definitely, yes. <laughs> I'm winging this one. I'm offended. Um, because I think there are some places and some subjects you think you know okay, so you can wing it. If I was going to talk about classics to a possible donor. There's no way I can wing being a classicist, but I have to pretend at least for the first 10 minutes of that conversation that I know something of what I'm talking Show about. interest. Yeah. Then I've prepped and I've learned my brief and I know what we're going to talk about. So it depends. You asked me to come here and effectively talk about myself. Now, the one subject I know in life is myself. Wherever the conversation takes us, I think all I can do is just be honest. Yeah, well, you certainly have been very honest. But let's go back to where we started here because you, you give us this three-point methodology. Bring people together, set up a team, and then lead them to it. So what's the key to bringing people together? Some of it is listening. Um, some of it is knowing people and their strengths. Um, you need to know what your objective is. So what are you bringing people together for? Oh, I mean, that was, look, there'll be people listening to this that own businesses, there'll be leaders of businesses, there'll be managers of businesses. Uh, so your objective? Yeah, know your objective. You have to know your objective. What's your outcome? What do you need it to be? What is the impact? Which, whichever way yeah. you want to use those two words. And um, so what is it that the end result maybe, or end product maybe why? needs to be? Maybe why? Um, well, I think when I say objective, I'm kind of talking broadly about what is your why, the purpose, what yeah. is the vision, yeah. what is it that you want to achieve, all of that in one space. Yeah, then there's the what kind of difference do you want to make, what's the outcome's going to look like, output's going to look like, mm-hmm. that's another space. And then you start thinking about who's going to make this happen, what are the right sort of people to bring into this, and um, the ones that will get the job done, the detail-oriented people who will keep the spreadsheets in line, how, how people like people you who will go talk to people about certain things. Um, can you, because you can bring two or three people together, can you? Sometimes it might just be two or three. Some of that means it might be two or three hundred. Yes. Depends on what you defined as your yeah. purpose and your objective, right? And whatever the task is yeah. that needs to be done, you constitute a team accordingly. And then you learn to trust 
a team. If you've, if I've done my job correctly and brought the right people together, I implicitly trust that they will do the job. And I then have to let them do Is that the because job. of who you are or have you learned to trust? Have you learned to let go? You learn by doing. Of course, as you rise through your career, you know, you're one of those people who's in the middle of everything and you're learning by doing. I certainly learn by observing and I love watching people who've got there before me to see what is it that they do? How did they? So this is what I meant by Tim. You know, Tim is several years my senior. He has a lot of experience. He's run large organizations. I love watching how he works and how his brain functions. Um, and as a result, it teaches me things. It's taught me certain flexibilities and uh, given me such an amount of freedom, for example. Um, but that applies to practically anybody yeah. at any level. It doesn't matter if they're senior to me or they're mm -hmm. junior to me. When you watch people doing something they believe in, whatever it might be, whether it's a spreadsheet that they need to fill. I have a head of development oper operations who runs our development office. She is happiest, like a pig in mud with a spreadsheet. And when you watch her, there is joy. When you say to somebody, business continuity planning, the happiest person in that room will be my Selena. We couldn't be more different. You say to me, business continuity planning, you've already lost me. But it's about bringing the right people together. The reason things work for us and the reason why we get things done is because she's in her happy place and I'm in my happy place. And then you have to learn to say, actually, I've done my job. They're a great bunch of people. They will get the job done. I'm out of here. Let's see what next do I focus on. Have you had to learn how to let go and, and leave them to it? Yes, definitely. I think you learn it. I don't, I don't, I don't think I learned it as something I set out to learn. I didn't even think I knew that that is something you can learn to do, let go. Um, but I certainly recognize very early on that it's really important to trust the people you're working with. And once you have trust, it's very easy to let go because I know really that they will get the job done. I, I, I get that point, actually. Once you've got trust, it's much easier, you said very easy, to let go. So it's true. Maybe maybe you're not letting go because you don't trust. I think to some extent, there are control freaks in all of us. They just show up in different places at different times, in different ways. And for mastering that control freak, you have to learn to trust whatever it is, whether it's circumstance, whether it's the people around you. And once you've mastered that bit of information, you know, I trust you, therefore I'm perfectly comfortable winging it. Um, I trust my team, therefore I'm perfectly comfortable that they will come up with great ideas or they will come to me when there is a problem, but they will do the best job they possibly can. It's the same with anything else. You know, I trust my son is fundamentally a good person. My job is to help shape that good person. Really nice, I said. And then he'll be ready to go when he's ready to go. I'm sure he will be with you as his mum. He's, he's 10, he's got a hoverboard. He's already gone. Oh, yeah. We've got a hoverboard. <laughs> Incredible on that. Have you been on it? Uh, yes. That was a less, a very humbling lesson yeah. in being an adult uh, yeah. who has fears and issues. I'm kind of going, yeah. you just stand and it does what? There's no walls around me. Oh, There's yeah. nothing I can hold. He just got on it and went. And I just thought, oh, Incredible. okay, yeah. So... We're trying to teach mum how to use a hub yeah. board. I think we may fail. But we'll banging into the skirting boards, banging into the kitchen. It's, it's For me, I think it's definitely loss of control. Right. Getting onto those two little things and not having anything around you. Yeah. And 
somehow it's going to be controlled by something. Yep, so. I recognized very quickly that I was deeply uncomfortable on that hoverboard. Well, let's, you know, let's move from one challenge to another. You've mentioned it rising through the ranks a couple of times mm-hmm. and you're a very, very senior person in the organization you're at. What's been your biggest challenge rising through it? Well, I think there's all sorts of isms you face anyway. You know, yes. I was very young when I was very fortunate to be in positions where I was doing well and rising. That is a problem, you know, so ageism. And sometimes your color can be an issue. Sometimes the fact that I wasn't born here can be an issue. Is it, it's of... becoming less and less? No, I think it exists. Right. I think what has changed is we talk about it. Yes. Well. Um, and we are more willing to be open about the fact yes. that, it's ex- that it exists. We all have biases. We all have the ability to prejudge. Yeah. Um, I think it's become okay to talk about it. It's become okay to accept that we all have them. We haven't quite cracked what we're going to do about it just yet. Are we talking about ageism, sexism, or racism? Everything. All the isms. You can put them all into one place. You know, everybody experiences them in some what way. What would you say to someone point. that's experiencing racism on the way up? I'll tell you what I told somebody I was mentoring many years ago. She was a young lady. Um, and... I always think there is responsibility on both sides. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that equal responsibility on both sides, but we need to reflect as much as we blame um, or we um, apportion responsibility to somebody. In her particular case, she was she's black. She'd been brought up with lots of people's stories around her that suggested that she would experience racism. She was in a new role. Um, first proper job, yeah. but really, like, I mean, one of those kids, you know, you're on the road to stardom, and boy, is she yeah. doing that right now? And her boss, who was a white man, had given her some feedback. Had she had not done well when we had our mentoring session, she came, and it was all about, you know, well, this feedback. He's a white man. I expected this, etc. And I said to her, okay, well, just just for two minutes, let's park that, and let's just visualize something slightly different. And we talked about, uh, I, I wasn't a coach in those days. I was just mentoring her. Um, and I said to her, okay, so your boss is a black man. And he says this to you. What happened? Well, he's right. I didn't do a good job. And this is what I mean by you have to, at all times, look both ways. How have I shown up? I showed up with my baggage. I showed up with everything that was put on my shoulders because I was taught to anticipate. Presence. So we, are, we brace ourselves for impact all the time because we're wired to, because all our conditioning has told us things. And as a result, we don't stop sometimes when impact happens to kind of go, what is the role I played in this? And it was a really interesting exercise for her um, in sort of recognizing that this was much more about her than it was about him. Yes, very powerful. Um, and I mean, you know, we went on different ways, etc. So I think the answer to your question is, of course, racism exists. And of course, people experience it. I had several things said to me over the years. I'm sure there's been stuff that I don't even know about. Um, I mean, I'm Indian. I don't often get mistaken for Indian. Um, but I'm of color, whatever mm-hmm. you want to assign to it. I think it's also how much you want to 
pick that up yeah. as well and how you act and how you react. My father always taught me, I mean, Michelle Obama said it way better. And I do remember this one, you know, when they go high or when they, when they go low, you go high. My father always taught me something slightly more simple, that you never lose your dignity. No matter what you have to do, you keep your integrity intact and you make sure the other person keeps their respect. And that for me has been my North Star always in how I conduct myself, whatever it is that I need. Okay, over the years, it's evolved into kindness and various other things. But the fundamental driver of what makes me me is that. So whatever I experience, I see it from that lens. You know, okay, you might have been having a bad... I think I wasn't really built for picking up those labels and spotting those isms. So maybe I've been gone through life kind of being slightly ignorant about the things I was facing. I faced ageism, for example, several times. Um, I've faced gender issues yep. several times. A colleague very kindly said to me, you know, it helps to be young and pretty because I'd got a promotion he hadn't. It actually, I walked away that day thinking, not, oh my God, this is a problem for me. This is a label I'm going to take on. I walked away simply thinking, tells me a lot more about who you are as an individual. And that was it. That's what, as far as it went. But I think it happens. It happens all the time. We don't realize it. And it happens to everyone for whatever reasons. It's not just about color. Yeah, but even in that, in, in that example that you've given there, that he might be just saying that for self-protection. Maybe, but it was not the right thing to say. It definitely and not. definitely didn't come out in a way that was but correct. The, the good thing for you, though, is you didn't attach to it. I've never taken on the labels people have tried to attach to me. I do not carry that cloak of labels. Do you do all. on yourself what you did when you were mentoring that lady? You know, is that how you do it? So I think probably one of my biggest skills is perspective. Yeah. I can see any situation two ways or three ways or four ways. There's always someone else's yeah. perspective in there. And then you learn, you know, you hone that skill. So you learn to utilize it at speed. The problem with perspective is that you can never be angry with anybody because there's always a way of justifying why they said what they said. Not a bad thing though, is it? I mean, it keeps you quite peaceful. You know, you don't take on other people's anger and other people's issues very often because you can explain it by maybe they're having a bad day. Um, it serves me very well in being able to sort of go, why did they say what they said? What was going on there? See, to understand before... You're understood, you know, um, what was going on? What is it that I need to take away from that conversation? What did I do in that space that I was responsible for? And therefore, what is it that I need to change? But whatever stuff came out of your mouth is not what landed. It's only what I needed to take away from it. Yeah, look, amazing stuff. I think you are a lady of great integrity, dignities that you got from your father. One thing that you mentioned right at the start, and you just mentioned mentioned it a second ago, is it's how you show up. Yes. And that's, but that's your perspective that you're talking about. And it's everything that you stand for, really, in life. All the experiences that you've had, and um, how you've decided to act, react, all of those sorts of things. I think brings you to that space where you go. And as you get older, I think you have less excuses. You know, there's no naivety of youth. There's none of those sort of excuses to fall back on. You sort of go, I've seen enough. I've experienced a lot. What comes out of my mouth, and this is reflecting Stephen Covey, 
what comes out of my mouth, I am responsible for. Therefore, I have to think about what comes out of my mouth and the impact it will have. Is that maturity or experience? I think a lot of it is experience, but isn't that really what defines maturity in many ways? Well, Stephen Covey, he talks maturity. about the continuum of maturity, doesn't he? So dependence, independence, interdependence. All right, I've got some quick questions for you. Okay. What is your favorite book? Oh, God. Um, it's always a difficult one. Look, if you go to music, I'll kill you. It's even harder to answer that. Um, no, just a I just read a book that had a real impact on me. I'll use that one. Yeah. Um, the Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Um, what impact did it have? It really, I mean, it, it is a book about perspectives. It's how you see your life. You know, it's the sliding doors concept. Yeah. Um, and really the lens that you apply to your life is how you how life looks back at you. So whatever happens, you can, the same experience could be good or bad. You think about the choices that you make and the consequences of those choices. And I'm always talking to my son about choices and consequences. You That book, well, 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 for you, I mean, what's what percentage of good experiences and bad? Are they all good? Or they... I think there's always an element of both happening at right. the same time. But, you know, it, it's a bit like saying we went to Legoland. We had a great experience, but it was really hot and they'd run out of ice cream. There was a bit of a bad experience going on. But what did we choose to remember? That we had a great time. So yeah. what if there was no ice cream? That's where perspective becomes your legacy, you know. What do you want to carry from it? Have you been to Legoland? Uh, yes. Is that <laughs> true? That, did yeah. the, <laughs> that is a true story. Yes, yes. Um, all right. So, what's your favorite movie? Oh, again, um, very difficult to answer. But I fell in love with the word, and the movie's lovely. Serendipity. Um, I've always carried it as a result. The movie's all right. You know, nothing to particularly write home about. But I love the concept of the film and I love the word. And again, it's sometimes also about believing in something that has the higher power than yourself. Mm-hmm. What is meant to be will be. There's another author here called Michael Lozier. He wrote a book called The Law of Attraction. The Law of Attraction is very well documented, yeah. And one of the chapters in that book is called Serendipity. It's fantastic. All right, this is one that you are prepared for. Okay. Which favorite music? Oh, good God. <laughs> I did think about this because I thought, you know, I don't know how to prepare for this discussion that we're going to have. But what if you ask me questions like that? And I only went as far as music. So I'm an 80s baby. Growing up in India, you know, your your repertoire is slightly limited. Yeah. And at that time, it was boy bands. So my best friend and I grew up knowing the words to words, the boy zone song. Loved boy zone. Not so much Backstreet Boys because, yeah. of course, you were always in one camp, not the other. Yeah. But I think my first and uh, long-standing love is Brian Adams and Heaven. I loved it the first time I heard it. I loved it when he sang it in a concert, literally looking at me. He climbed the railings and he He was was looking looking at me and he was singing that song. You say, Juma. Who cares? You know, he was singing it to me. And it sort of stayed with me. I love that song. So I I think it would always be. Brian Adams, Heaven. Heaven. There you go. Everybody listen now. This was practice. Gonna, this is the only bit that I didn't wing. You, you know, the next thing they're going to go and listen to is Brian Adams' Heaven. Beautiful, beautiful song. What a beautiful yes, it emotion. Is. Yeah, it is. If you could have a superpower, what would it be? I think mine is calm. You've already got it. I, I'm 
very calm. Nothing ruffles my feathers, really. Calmness or yeah. kindness? Calmness, I think. I don't, I don't you, know if kindness is It's not at all. I, think but you, I, think I wish you... it was more people's superpower. Oh, right, yes. Your superpower would be to give that power to other people. Oh, God, no, I wouldn't take that responsibility. Goodness me. <laughs> no, no, you, he's, 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 if I could make it happen. Oh, yeah, yes, yeah, no, that's yes. a superpower. It's like... Imagine you if it. the world was kind, we wouldn't have war, we wouldn't have vaccine shortages, we wouldn't have Go poverty. Go with that answer. You get World peace. My superpower. This universe next. Oh, right, so <laughs> first superpower, you, I'm your genie. Done it all. I'll give you three wishes. My first wish is I will make the world kind. My second wish, I'm going to become Miss World. No, God, no. I just want some money and I want to travel. <laughs> there you go. Which actually becoming Miss World allows you to do, but yeah. I'm really not that polished or poised for this Okay. World. It's not my thing. Favourite holiday destination? Really anywhere with my son. It doesn't matter. As long as we're together, we have a great time. Early bird or night owl? Oh, I used to be a night owl and then I grew old. Uh, but now I'm in bed by 8.39 with my son. And what time do you get up? Five, 5.30. Yeah, early bird, hey? If you could have one day in somebody else's shoes, who's, who would you choose? Is this like a thing that you must all ask? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who could I... Do you know, actually, this is not probably the most profound answer in some ways. I would love to be in my son's shoes. I would love to be inside his head to see how he sees the world and what goes on in that head. Because sometimes it feels like nothing goes on in that head. And sometimes it feels like a lot is going on. And then he says the most profound things that you kind of go, you're 10. He said the other day, male, female, non-binary, who cares? Let them be them. I'm doing me. He's 10. We don't have time for the full context of that conversation. But I was just amazed. So I'd love to be in his shoes, in That's his head. That's a really nice answer. Who have been the three biggest trusted advisors in your life? Um, my uh, parents, very explicitly and without knowing. What uh, did you get from them? I think your parents, inevitably, good or bad, give you the grounding that makes you who you are. Um, I got a lot from them. I also got a lot from learning what not to do by looking at them. Um, my uh, Where I did my undergraduate degree, our principal, just the most amazing woman, really. She's a... Yeah, she's just incredible. I don't think anyone who has come across her will ever tell you otherwise. And she's a force of nature. Um, she was very influential. And I think probably now, um, it's a lady called Indu Shahani, uh, who's sort of part of the establishment in education in India. But she is just the most incredible woman. You want to get something done? You give it to her. Um, I think somewhere secretly in my head, I've wanted to grow up to be like yeah. her. Um, and I think currently actually my boss um being with him over the last four years has really made me think about how i do things by watching him see how, how he thinking turns. time preparation so many things you know his integrity the respect that he has for anyone at all levels of the organization how much he believes in the mission and therefore what he does for it his dedication to the organization i'm not saying he gets it right all of the time he's human but there are just some things about him. He's fundamentally a good human being. And 
I learn a lot from him, actually, just the way he sometimes looks at things. We look at things very differently. You know, we bounce off each other a lot. Um, but the way he looks at things, um, just everything, the way he does things, there's a lot. I think I've been very fortunate. At the right times in my career, people have shown up that have taught me a lot of things that have then shaped the way the next bit of my career path will be, whether good or bad. Mm. Um, I once had an experience as a fundraiser um, where I went to see somebody to pick up a check, just to pick up a check. And that gentleman turned around and said, you know, when I said, you know, where do I sit? He sort of went, well, how about here? Now, I was 24. And at that moment, you could kind of go, really? This is wrong. You could, what do you do in a situation like that? Actually. What did you do? I kind of humored my way out of that one, really. But I was not letting go of that check. It was a big check. Um, and I'd only just started working in that organization. But I went back and I spoke to my boss and I said, you know, this is not the person you ever send anyone alone to, boy or girl. Um, fundraisers are often female, raising money often for men. Um, there's a lot there, but it's shaped my entire career arc with regards to the capacity building work that I like to do, the training that I like to do, how I build my teams, the sort of buddy systems we operate in, all of those sorts of things. So I think good or bad, people come into your lives yeah. at the right times. I've just been very fortunate that I've met some amazing people. Um, and they left me with learnings that have carried me all the way through. Yeah, re really good share. Um, if there's one thing that the listeners could or should do after listening to this, what do you think is? Be kind. You know, it's very easy to be kind every day, Where do you several start? times a day. I say to my son, when somebody drops a pencil and you lean down to pick it up, that's kindness. Somebody's carrying something and you say, can I help? That's kindness. I once tried to help a little old lady on a station with her two big suitcases that were bigger than her. We did not go down well. She was like, what if you run away with it? And I was like, well, I'm you just fine like, in heels. I don't really do yeah, any running. Yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you what. Expression is uh, hitting you with a handbag or something. <laughs> but, I mean, at one level, I was a little bit sad that that was her yeah. reaction to being helped. Because what has she seen in her life that makes her react yeah. that way? And quite frankly, I mean, I don't really... You know, and five inch heels, I wasn't going to go anywhere. And I said to her, I'll tell you what, we'll crack a deal. You take my bag. It's got an iPad. It's got a phone. It's got a laptop. Hold on to that. You carry that up. I'll carry your suitcases up. Very little chance that I can run away because you've also got my house keys in my bag. So that was the trade-off that we had. So I think be kind. You never know who's going through what and what kind of a day they're having. Just even a kind word sometimes can be the difference. You know what? I was going to say that kindness was my favourite thing about this session. Hey, and I just, I just think though, your compassion, your calmness, and that patience that you've that you've suggested so many times—that's might be my favourite thing. I think kindness as well. I think putting up there. What's been your favourite thing? I really enjoyed it. Really. Actually, I've never done anything like this before for such a long conversation. The focus being on me. We started talking, yeah. we talked about invisibility. Um, I hope that whatever I'm saying, somebody somewhere is hearing it and there is something that, that has added value to whatever time it is that's spent hearing this. Um, and that would have made my day, even if it's just one person who went, oh, I like that. You might get some reactions to some of the things I've said. I've tried to be really good today. Um, You've been great. Um, yeah, it's been it's been a pleasure. 
Thank you. On behalf of everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you. Jumar Johnson.